Good morning. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 2. This is the second part of a message entitled The Daily Edition. That's not a newspaper. That is a characteristic of the first church in Acts chapter 2, and I want you to see verse 47 where it says, They were praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. There was a daily addition of people in the early church, not just to show up, not just to check out the newest thing in Jerusalem, but being saved. Day by day by day, people were being transformed from lost to found. People were being transformed from the darkness to the light. People were being transformed from rebellion against God to a relationship with God. Wouldn't that be exciting if on our email prayer chain, every day we had to send out emails that said, FYI, Jim got saved today, and Patty and Don and their kids got saved today, and if you don't know who they are, they're related to Bob and Kelly who got saved yesterday. You see, the miracle of salvation was not a rare occasion in the early church. It was a common, expected, daily occurrence. And as we measure ourselves against the early church in this area, we're considering four things. The first is our mission. Our mission is knowing Him and making Him known. We could have chosen enjoying His grace and extending His glory. We could have chosen being blessed so that we might be a blessing. They're all synonymous. We spent the bulk of our time last week exploring how that mission is spelled out from cover to cover in the Bible. Apart from all other created things, we were made in God's image, which means we have the unique capacity to know God like no other creature. In fact, when you think about it, even the angels were not created in God's image. We have a capacity to know God in an intimate, deep way that the angels can't. In fact, the Bible tells us they long to know some of the things that we know. And then having been made in God's image, man was commanded to multiply that image throughout the earth. Abraham was chosen by God to be the father of a great nation. Why? So that all the nations of the earth might be blessed. He was blessed to be a blessing. God established the temple in Israel for God to dwell with his people and to draw all nations to himself. And we said last week that's why Jesus went into the temple in his day and drove out the money changers. Because he said, my Father's house is a house of prayer for all the nations. 
and you've made it a robber's den. It's a house of prayer for relationship with God. For who? For all the nations to draw them in, and you have made it a selfish, self-centered place where you are robbing other people. His parting command in Matthew 28 gives us our mission. What is it? Go and make disciples of all nations. Why did the Holy Spirit come? To dwell in us? That's relational. And to empower us to be Jesus' witnesses where? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. And we see the consummation in the book of Revelation because when we get to the 21st chapter, we find there's no temple in that eternal city because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are the temple. No temple because we have that dwelling with him forever. And who is there? An uncountable multitude from every nation, tribe, and tongue glorifying God. That's the consummation of the mission. Our mission is to enjoy his grace and to extend his glory. Our mission is to be blessed so that we might be a conduit for his blessing. Our mission is to know him and to make him known. Look, look with me at Ephesians chapter 1. If I had to pick my favorite book in the Bible, I think it would have to be Ephesians. I love Ephesians. And in Ephesians chapter 1, there's a great sentence in verse 3. It starts out this way, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. What's interesting is, this begins the longest sentence in the entire Bible. It's 202 words long. It starts in verse 3, doesn't end to the end of verse 14. And it is a catalog of God's blessings to you and me. He says, God has blessed us in verse 3 with every spiritual blessing. Verse 4, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He made us holy and blameless. Verse 5, he adopted us into his family as children. And why did he do that? Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Verse 7, he continues, he redeemed us, he bought us, he forgave us of of all our sins. Verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will. We have such a relationship with God that he is revealing his will to us and not just his will, he's telling us secrets that nobody else knows. And then verse 11, he has given us an inheritance. Why? Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Verse 13, he sealed us with the Holy Spirit till the day of redemption. Verse 14, he gave his spirit as a pledge, a down payment for all that God's going to give us. Why? Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. We enjoy his grace. Why? To extend his glory. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for God's own possession. That's all our blessings right there. And we could break that open and, and it's exciting stuff. God has made us his special possession. Why? The verse goes on. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We know him to make him known. We enjoy his grace to extend his glory. And that is God's mission for you. Not just us as a church, for you as an individual. From the beginning of history all the way through, that's been his mission. From the cover of the Bible in the front to the cover of the Bible at the back, that is God's mission for you. So let me ask you a question. Why is it so hard to implement that? Why aren't we running into each other trying to get the mission accomplished? Well, to help you with the answer, point two is our disconnect. The mission is a seamless whole. If you notice the front of your bulletin, we didn't perforate one part of it so you could tear it off. We know him and we make him known. It's a seamless whole. And yet as I look at my own life and I look at your life, I see that we invest heavily in the first part of the mission. We're all in on knowing him. We'll come to church, we'll go to Bible studies, we'll add another Bible study, we'll try to learn more. We're we're all in on enjoying His grace. But we're not sold out on the second half. We hesitate when it comes time to make Him known. We're always trying to get around to making Him known. We fail. To extend his glory. And I would argue that if we don't have both parts of the mission, we don't have either part of the mission. If somebody really knows him, they will make him known. Think about the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and they got to Emmaus and they they recognized Jesus, that he was alive. What does the Bible say they did that very hour? They turned around and went the seven miles back to Jerusalem to tell somebody about it. Our two kids in Ohio don't know the Lord. We've been praying for them. We had a very pleasant answer to our prayer when we went back for Thanksgiving because Lisa's nephew that's about 36, 37 years old, who is an engineer, a very accomplished engineer and an atheist, got saved. Just about a week before we got there. I wish you could have seen this guy. 
because he could not stop talking about his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so what we wanted to tell our kids when we went, they got, through a clear message, seeing the changed life of Quentin and the testimony of this man saying, I owe it all to Jesus Christ. But I will tell you this, if you really know him, you can't stay quiet about him. If you truly enjoy his grace, you will extend his glory. Now let me clarify, glory is not something I give God. God already has it. God radiates glory. Glory is a hard word to define, but let me define it this way. Essentially, it's the worth, beauty, value, splendor of someone. So when I glorify God, I simply recognize who he is and how glorious he is, and I proclaim it. And the gospel provides the setting for God's glory to shine. Let me illustrate that. It's going to be a painful illustration, but for some of you. Albert Pujols is the best player in baseball. He he just signed a 10-year, 250-odd million dollar contract. Okay, let's assume the angels sign him, and then they look at their budget and realize they can't afford anybody else. So they start dumping other players and dumping salary, And because they can't afford anybody else, they sign you to the team. They're going to give you about $42,000. Some of you would play for free, wouldn't you? You still got game. So now it's Albert on the Angels and you and a bunch of other scrubs. That's the team. But because Albert is so good you get to the World Series next year. It's the seventh game of the World Series. You have struck out four times and made five errors because you've only had five balls hit to you. The coach has actually yanked you out of the game. You're sitting on the bench in the dugout with your head in your hands, Ashamed of the way you've played. Your team is down three runs. It's the bottom of the ninth. There's two outs. And Albert is up. Now, this is the setting for glory if the person coming to the plate has the capability of shining. You're sitting in the dugout going, glad I'm not up there. Albert comes to the plate and hits a grand slam. Even though you are benched, sitting in the dugout with your head in your hands, ashamed of your performance, guess what? You just won. Now, when they interview you after the game, who are you going to be talking about? 
well, I was close to that one. I almost caught it. Who are you going to be talking about? You're going to be talking about Albert. You're going to be talking about the hero. Well, in the game of life, you are wearing the collar. In the game of life, as hard as you try to hit the ball, you cannot hit the ball. And you have made error after error and after error. And as you look around at your teammates, they're just as bad as you are. But Jesus Christ has stepped into this setting and hit the grand slam of all grand slams. And if you are in him, you win. Now, when they come to interview you in the champagne shower, who are you going to talk about? Is it going to be me, me, me? Or is it going to be Jesus? Are you singing his praises? Are you pointing to him with every opportunity you get? Are you making him known? That is our mission. Are you passionately pursuing that mission? Or are you disconnecting his grace from his glory? In the days of Elisha, there was a great famine in Samaria. And to compound the problem, the Syrian army had surrounded the city where the king of Israel was. When they ran out of food, they resorted to eating donkeys. And when they ran out of donkeys, they resorted to eating their own babies. It was a disastrous situation. And the Bible zooms in to that picture to four lepers sitting in the gate of the city. That's where lepers sat. They couldn't go in the city. They sat in the gate of the city hoping to get some handouts. Now, when people are eating babies and they have no food and things are this desolate, It's not a very profitable venture to be sitting in the gate with a cup hoping to get something. So the Bible tells us that they made a logical choice. They said, we're going to die anyway. If we go in the city, they're eating babies. If we sit here, nobody's going to give us anything. So what we will do is we will go over to the enemy and we will surrender What's the worst they could do? Kill us. And if they execute us, maybe they'll give us a last meal. So they get up and they go to the enemy. Unbeknownst to them, the night before, God has the Syrian army to hear the sound of chariots and horses coming toward them. They conclude that Israel has hired Egypt to come and deliver them. And so, in the middle of the night, the Syrian army flees. So, these four lepers walk into this encampment full of tents, full of horses, 
full of donkeys, gold, silver, food. Everything was left. They just fled. So they walk in. They're starving. They go get some food, and they start stuffing themselves. Like Thanksgiving afternoon. They've gone from nothing to all-they-can-eat buffet. Then they go in the tents and they get the silver and the gold and the clothing and they go off to a cave somewhere and they start stockpiling it, hiding it. One tent after another, hide it, stockpile it. And then they all kind of stopped at the same time. And the Bible records this in 2 Kings 7, 9. Then they said to one another... We are not doing right. This is a day of good news, but we are keeping silent. You have walked out of a famine-stricken, starving world into all the blessings of God. When is the last time you paused and said, I'm not doing right? When is the last time you paused and said, this is a day of good news, and I'm being silent? I am disconnecting because I am stockpiling God's blessings and I'm not being a blessing. I am disconnecting because I'm enjoying His grace and I'm not extending His glory. I'm disconnecting because I am knowing Him and I'm not making Him known. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't disconnect? You know, he could have. Let me show you a passage. Look at John chapter 12. For those of you who are worried, we're not going to get done today. John chapter 12. Jesus gives a universal principle. It's really the key to fulfilling the mission. And it's in John chapter 12 and verse 24. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. How do I fulfill the mission? You say, well, I pump myself up and I become really strong and then, no. Jesus says, you die and then you bear much fruit. And Jesus personifies that principle because he is the one who died so that we might live. 
And if we read on, as we read on in this passage, what's interesting is we get to verse 27, and we see that at the doorstep of the cross, Jesus is feeling the weight of his mission. And notice what he says in verse 27. Now my soul has become troubled. Jesus is days away from the cross. This is not what he experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane when he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood in anguish about the cross. But he's already feeling it. And he says, I'm troubled. He's flinching. He's feeling this internal struggle. And notice what he says in the rest of verse 27. Now my soul has become troubled. I'm in turmoil. I'm in dread. And what shall I say? What are my options? Here's one. I could say, Father, save me from this hour. Jesus is in anguish about the cross. He's looking at his options. One of them could be, Father, save me. Jesus says, I could make this all about me. But, look at verse 27 again. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. This is why I'm here. This is my purpose. This is my mission. So instead of saying, Father, save me, what does he say? Verse 28. Father, glorify your name. And what's the result of that choice? Slide down a few verses to verse 32. And I... If I be lifted up from the earth, how was he lifted up from the earth? In death on the cross. I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Jesus could have prayed, Father, save me, but he chose to save us to the glory of God. So let me ask you this morning what choice are you making? Are you saying, Father, save me? Father, let me enjoy your grace. Lord, let me know you, period. Or are you like Jesus, willing to say, Father, glorify yourself by me dying to myself so that I might reach other people? Which brings us to our third point, our excuses. Now, I call this our excuses because we would never just say, I'm stockpiling blessings and I don't care about anybody else. I am stuffing myself spiritually so that I'm so tired I just take the Thanksgiving nap on the couch and I don't care about anybody else. We would never say, I am enjoying God's grace. I love the champagne shower. But I'm not going to say anything about the hero. I'm not going to glorify his name. We would never say that. 
what do we do instead? We justify our selfishness by making excuses. And I thought of a few. I'll help you with this because you're going, I don't make excuses. One excuse I hear very often is this. I'm not called. I'm not called. Dan's called. James is called. Jim Harper's called. Our missionaries are called. But I'm not called. And it kind of frees our conscience to draw some lines in the Bible that are unbiblical and selfish. Christians love to draw lines to say, all the privileges belong to everybody, but the responsibilities are just for a few. The blessings, that's for everybody. But to really go out there and lay your life on the line to make his glory known, that's just for a few. I read Jesus' command in Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, and I say, that means other people. I read Jesus' command in Matthew 11, come unto me all who are How's that verse go? Weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And you say, that's me. Go is other people. Come, that's me. Come get the blessings. Come get the rest. That's me. When Jesus promises in Acts 1.8 that the Spirit will empower us to be witnesses to the end of the earth, that's talking to other people. When Jesus says in John 10 that we will have abundant life, that's me. You see, the commands we divide up and say, that's for somebody else unless I like the command. The promises, that's for somebody else unless I like the promise. Now granted, God gifts us differently and he may call us to different people and to different places. Peter was sent to the Jews. Paul was sent to the Gentiles. But he gave them the same spirit and the same mission. And that mission was to make disciples of all the nations. Listen to me. If you are a believer, you are called. You're just not listening. You were created to go, you were saved to go, and you were commanded to go. You are called. That's your mission. Second excuse. I'm not able. I can't do it. I'm not able. You ever say that? I can't. Can I tell you something? When you say I'm not able, that's not an excuse, that's a fact. You are not supposed to be able. Would you go back to Acts chapter 2 with me? Acts chapter 2 and verse 41. says, So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added... 
about 3,000 souls. The word added is a passive term. We use a sports analogy. Let me use a cooking analogy. When you're making cake and you add a teaspoon of whatever you add, whatever you're adding, let's say it's salt, isn't doing any work. The measuring spoon isn't doing any work. Who's doing the adding? The cook. Who adds people to the church? Who adds people to the kingdom of God? Look at verse 47. If you don't know, he spells it out. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. You can't add anybody. That's why when Jesus made that command in Matthew 28, he said, go and make disciples of all the nations. And what's the next verse say? Lo, I am with you always. I'm sending you, but I'm going with you. Go and lo. Go to all the nations, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the ages. You see, there is no such thing as one-on-one evangelism. Because Jesus is always there. You open your mouth and start to share the gospel with someone, and lo, I am with you always. And again, we like to claim the lo, but not the go. It's conditional. Jesus says, go, and lo, I will be with you. So when you go out there, you're not alone. You're not depending on you. He is working through you. He is with you, and he is doing the work. He is the only one who can add to the church. We're out of time again. I got a new clock right here, so they they don't want me to go too far over time. Let me close by asking you a question. We're almost at the end of 2011. How many people have you led to the Lord in 2011? How many people have you shared the gospel with and seen saved in 2011? Let me make it easier for you. How many people in the past year have you shared the gospel with? How many people have you sat down with and said, I want to share with you the good news that it would be wrong for me to keep quiet about. If you've got to say nobody, then I'll tell you something. You stay on this track, you get to the end of your life, zero times however many years you've got left is what? Zero. Our mission is to know him and make him known. And I trust today, in the context of this message, and our message is to come on this subject, that we will be challenged. And again, I tell you this, this is challenging to me. I've often told you the hardest part of my Christian life is prayer 
and sharing the gospel with other people. Those are the two toughest things. The others are wonderful, enjoyable. But to really spend hours in praying for people's salvation and really sharing the gospel with them is where the rubber meets the road. It's really the front lines of the battlefield. And so often we shy away from that. That's our mission, to know him and to make him known. So as we close out our service in song and praise to the Lord, I'm going to ask you just to be honest with him this morning about where you're at. And some of us need to confess to him, God, I am disconnecting the mission. I'm investing heavily in the first part, knowing you, celebrating your grace. But I have been sorrowfully lax in making you known to other people, in taking every opportunity to point to you and say, he's the hero. He's the one whose name needs to be glorified. Would you be honest with the Lord this morning as we close our service in praise? Let's stand as we praise him together in closing.